This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. So being attracted to bad boys or girls whom you know would hurt you. I guess in this case, again, I would look at the context. So what is it about these girls that attract you to them? Mm-hmm. What is it? Well, I, I don't know. Sorry. I, mean, I don't get very confessional here. <laughs> oh, but, I'm sorry. Okay. But I think we can think of enough examples, you know, even in you know popular culture or something. But I don't know. But at least it seems to me that we don't necessarily prioritize survival in those cases, right? We mm-hmm. don't necessarily prioritize our chances to procreate and to just add volume to our species, mm-hmm. right? What happens in those instances is a certain willingness to put something else before our well-being, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, maybe we, we read different kinds of literature on this, but I wonder what would be the neuroscientific explanation for those types of behaviour, you know? Hi, I'm Ahmad Fuad Rahmat. Welcome to Night School, the show where we talk concepts, theories and society. This week, we welcome Dr. Seeling Choi. She is a lecturer in psychology at Help University and she is going to talk to us about the neuroscience of love and relationships. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, we like to usually get to know our guests before we get into the topic. So, tell us a little bit about how you came to be interested in this area. Well, I'm a neuroscientist and generally my area of interest is in consciousness. But when I joined the Department of Psychology in HELP, I found that my background afforded me to give really interesting perspectives in sense of the brain perspective on many issues in psychology. So in this sense, I think the psychology of love and relationships is something that many people are interested about. So in this sense, I feel that giving you the perspective of the brain may change the context a little bit. Yeah. And at first glance, people might think of those two things as totally alien worlds, right? Neuroscience and love, right? But maybe you can start by telling us where they converge. What's the connection? Well, I think a lot of people like to think that love is an area that maybe neuroscience can't explain. But if you actually look at the brains of people who are in love, for example, It is actually quite similar to people who are temporarily insane to a certain extent. If you think of a person who is in lust or missing his or her partner, essentially they are very similar to an addict, right? They want to see that person again. In terms of their reasoning, it's inhibited as well. So in some sense, I think that there is some similarity between addiction being temporarily insane and also being in love. Now, how do you tell those things apart? How do you tell those things apart? Because the imaging, based on little I know, Mm -hmm. I mean, you're just based on where the sort of lights that part, right? In the image, I don't know the terms for this. But how would you tell the difference between this person, you know, being addicted and this person being in love? They're very different, but it happens at the same place in the brain. So at what point do you name it different things? Well, first of all, I guess you will have to look at the particular stimuli they are looking at. But I think one key area that would differ would be perhaps the areas that deal with hormones. So when you're in love, essentially, or when you're in lust, I think the areas that deal with the sexual hormones are very much activated. And in a sense, studies have also shown that if you look at 
you compare brains of people who experience maternal love and romantic love, they do overlap. But one of the key areas that differ is the area for sexual desire, which is in a sense good because you don't want to desire your parents, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, how does that help? In that, okay, granted, we have this data about what happens in the brain that we can call love. Uh, what what do we do with that information after? What do we do with that information? I think it might give you different perspectives on maybe looking at different types of love. So we are very accustomed to thinking of love as romantic love, but you can actually separate them into other types like maternal love, companionship love, and so on. So I think having a rough idea of the neural areas, I wouldn't say that you know there is a set pattern, mm-hmm. but having some sort of a template and to a certain extent, a starting point helps you guide further research on trying to tease apart similar mm-hmm. but you know very distinct types of feelings or love. All right, interesting. So you are really finessing your understanding of what's actually happening when you have these feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think, especially maybe for teenagers or young adults, when they're first struck by that feeling they think or they would like to call love, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot mm-hmm. of disorientation as well, right? You start questioning your vulnerabilities and stuff like that. So I guess based on what you tell me, what I imagine the conversation can be with the data you have is to really fine-tune what's, you know, your understanding of what's going on and be more precise as to not, you know, be reckless maybe or overinvest. I don't know. But there is that risk, right? When we don't know what we're feeling, uh, we might make the wrong decisions from mm-hmm. there, right? So tell us a little bit about some of the interesting findings that neuroscience, you know, have made in light of maybe some of the popular attitudes towards love. Some of the popular attitudes. Maybe I'll talk a little bit about maybe the differences in terms of how males and females view jealousy, for example, or infidelity. So we think of infidelity, you can typically cheat on someone physically, so you have a sexual relationship with someone else, or you might think of emotionally cheating. So you didn't sleep with someone else, but you may be confided in them. And what's really very interesting is that we do see a sexual difference in terms of how males and females respond to infidelity. So males typically feel that, or they get very threatened if their partners tell them that they have cheated physically with someone. Whereas females tend to feel it more when their partners tell them, I have cheated emotionally with somebody. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting because if you look at the evolutionary perspective of men, uh, men tend to think of themselves as, oh, well, they rate their masculinity very much in terms of their sexual prowess, whereas females are, to a certain extent, nurturous. Mm-hmm. So you would think that as a female or your female partner, you should confide in me. That's my role. But instead, you're going to someone else. Mm-hmm. So that's kicking someone where it hurts the most and vice versa for yeah. the males. I'm supposed to be protecting you and giving you that satisfaction that way, but you're seeking it from someone else. So that was a very interesting study that was done. And they did it with heterosexuals and homosexual couples. And they found that this effect that I just told you about was predominantly in the heterosexual couples. Mm -hmm. For the homosexual couples, bisexuals, it didn't seem to make that much of a difference. Cheating was just still cheating. Yeah. Pardon my naivete, but it seems to me that a lot of the conclusions that you said could be explained by evolutionary psychology, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't need 
neuroscience necessarily. I agree. I think that generally there is no one answer to everything. Anytime there's an issue, the more perspectives you have, social evolutionary psychology, I think that that helps in our understanding of the issue at hand. So definitely, I don't think neuroscience can answer everything. I think it's merely giving you the perspective mm-hmm. and helping you gain more insight yeah. to that issue. Yeah. So when we think about love and romantic partners, uh, at least in the field that I come from, uh, social construction plays a big role as an explanatory mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. Why are we more inclined to, say, choose a partner of, say, a certain class demographic, right? Why are we more inclined to choose a partner of a certain skin complexion? A lot of this we can explain by saying, well, the media plays a great influence in this and or class affords you a certain level of education. Therefore, you're more likely to socialize with the same type of people, so on and so forth. And this is a world of a difference than, say, the neuroscientific approach. So can you contrast the two to see where they might overlap or where they might be totally speaking different language? Hmm. Contrasting. Okay, one study I can think of is we pay a lot of attention on attraction in terms of vision, right? But we're also finding a lot of research showing that being attracted to someone, that special X effect, (laughs) to a certain extent, it's unconscious. Mm -hmm. Because I guess if you know why you're attracted to someone, you can control it. And to a certain extent, research has shown that pheromones are really important, your sense of smell. So in terms of you being attracted to somebody their pheromones actually indicate to you whether your immune systems are compatible. Mm -hmm. So if you meet someone whose genetics are really, really dissimilar to you and the product of maybe copulation would result in an offspring that would not survive, you would not actually be attracted to this person. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, but you can find someone who shares similar genetics but not too similar in the sense that this someone could be related to you. Mm -hmm. So it's a fine balance between the two. You can't be too dissimilar, but at the same time, you can't be too similar. Mm -hmm. And in this sense, a lot of the times, this is done on an unconscious level. You don't know why you're attracted to this person. Right, right. But people like that mystery, right? (laughs) And people uh, romanticize the unknown, right? Especially in the early stages of, you know, infatuation, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Does neuroscience demystify that? I mean, because science does that, right? I mean, a lot of myths just get deflated right? <laughs> by empirical proof and experimentation. But I think, at least from the examples you've given, one of the effects would be that it would be to demystify. And maybe this is a good thing because I think idealization can be damaging, you know, for different mm-hmm. reasons. But a lot of what maybe popular culture portrays as love and romance, right, would have a more sober and systematic account from neuroscience. I mean, is that that one way you position the discourse's effectiveness or utility? I do ask these questions with my students. Okay, this is one of their favorite chapters, obviously. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the questions I ask, like, what do you find attractive in the other person? The features changes. So back in the days, they used to say, you know, "I, I really like girls with long hair and, you know, big eyes. But now when you ask them, they say things like, well, intelligence or personality or sense of humor. So to a certain extent, it's very hard to sort of categorize which one has more influence because we primarily as evolved human beings now, we have become a lot more voluntary. We are not just driven by our urges and drives. So the features that we find attractive in the opposite sex to a certain extent 
is shaped by socialization as well. So each really influences the other. To draw a line between the two, I think, is very variable. I think that line would differ for each individual. Yeah. I get the sense too that now, you know, because of the way in which love is taking place in a very, you know, hyper-connected world. People are meeting people online nowadays. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily see them first to fall for them. And, you know, their expectations of maintaining a family is very, very difficult because the economy is very uncertain. The problem is not so much about, you know, identifying the right partner as keeping a relationship intact, Mm -hmm. you know, over time. And I think I've lived long enough to see that this is becoming more and more difficult people in my generation, right? So mm-hmm. what does neuroscience say? What are the general insights that neuroscience might have to offer for how is it that sustaining relationships are getting more and more difficult? I say compared to 20 years ago during our parents' time, you know, I don't want to generalize there mm-hmm. were difficulties then, but the taboos are changing in terms of, you know, what counts for, you know, a failure in a relationship and what doesn't, you know? Yeah. Well, I guess maybe... The studies that come to mind right now don't directly answer your question. I can think of certain studies that actually differentiate between the different amounts of hormones that influence falling in love or lust, romantic love, and then, of course, companionship love. So I'm talking about companionship in this sense of parenting. So if you think about falling in love, lust, the goal here is to pretty much just do it, (laughs) just copulate. If you try to deliberate, especially for millennials these days, you think in terms of whether I can afford to have a kid and all of that. If we are really that conscious and voluntary, we essentially will not copulate. So lust, um, some people have described it as temporary insanity. It's to sort of inhibit our logic and get us to just copulate. But then, of course, you can't be doing this with every single person that you meet. So romantic love comes in to sort of say, I think you need to be a little bit more specific because to woo somebody, you're going to be using up certain resources. So in this sense, even within these two stages, the levels of sex hormones are different. So in the first lust stage, it's a lot of sex hormones like testosterone and estrogen. The second part would be more hormones like oxytocin, which is more about, or at least dopamine reward. Mm -hmm. And finally, when you decide that you want to actually settle down with this person, then you need hormones like or neurotransmitters like oxytocin, which increases bonding. And your focus at that point is giving a very stable, safe environment to raise a kid together. But in this sense, I would be very interested to look at a longitudinal study of how people's brains are changing with exactly what you're saying, because we see a rise in terms of friends with benefits, for example, And a recent survey in Canada has shown that people are more, there are, I guess, a higher percentage of people that are in favor of friends with benefits because it fits our current lifestyle, right? So in that sense, I feel that that would be an interesting study to run to actually answer your question directly. And I've also wondered about, you know, the, um, the historical particularity of the nuclear family and that Mm -hmm. has never been the default mode in which a family is organized for the longest time, right? So if you think about the history of property relations, how those relations were, you know, coded by law, by the state and stuff like that, and that that influenced notions of courtship and family, those things are very recent. I wonder if, like you rightly point out, the circumstances 
by which people meet these days are challenging that, you know. So I think you're right. I mean, a, a longitudinal study looking into the social plasticity of the brain, if I may mm-hmm. say so, you know, would offer a lot of insights. But let's take a pause right now. We'll return after the break where we talk about the neuroscience of love and romance with Dr. Si Ling Choi of Help University and this I'm up for Rahma on Night School on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to me, Ahmad Fat Rahmat, joined this week by Dr. Si Leng Choi of Help University. She is telling us about uh, the neuroscience of love and relationship. In the first part of the show, we talked about the sort of assumptions and some of the interesting claims that have come out of the discipline linked heavily to not just what happens in the brain when we fall in love, but you know, partner choices, life decisions, and so forth. Uh, and that made me think about Again, I think it was the phrase that you used earlier, the X factor, <laughs> when choosing a partner, because there's a danger in which some of the explanations that I've been listening reduces us to our sort of strategic position in the <laughs> evolutionary menu, right? In that maybe there's somebody who looks exactly like me in my income bracket who has the same interests as me. And does that mean that we would attract the same type of people, right? I mean, where does individuality come in? Where does authenticity come in if our choices are really easily mappable on these different types, right? Does, does that make sense, right? In that, yes. are we only really just our evolutionary categories, you know? No, I think that's a really pertinent question because that's something I always wondered myself, for example. If I had someone who looks just like, you know, an ex or a boyfriend, would I actually fall for them? So to a certain extent, I feel that yes and no. Um, If you think that we are really that simple in the sense that I have a checklist of my ideal person and anyone who meets that I will fall in love with, you can see that countless shows like Bachelor, The Bachelorette, that's essentially their recipe, right? Yeah. And I'm not sure, I don't really follow these shows, but I'm not sure how many of them actually end up in a very happy union. Yeah, yeah. Um. Chances are maybe they might, but after a while they find that I think they part ways. So what I can maybe conclude or hypothesize in this sense would be maybe you can't help who you fall in love with, but you can choose who you want to be with. All right. So in the sense that if you think about your past relationships, you may remember someone you loved a lot and perhaps the someone didn't treat you very well. But whether you want to continue a relationship with someone, I think that's a conscious choice. And that is up to you. So it doesn't mean that you're doomed just because you love this person. You can still make the choice to say, if I want to be with you or not. And I think once we think that way and we take some of the autonomy back and not say that we, we're just totally helpless and fools in love, I think that that would actually make a difference. Yeah, I agree with that in that, these categories are very, very illuminating, but there is that, I guess, liminal space between the evolutionary and the personal, I guess. I don't know what that, what, you know, where, I don't know, I don't want to call it the soul or whatever, but I think there is something about, you know, our sense of character, you know, our sense of authenticity, I guess, being mm-hmm. true to ourselves, whatever that might mean in, in the kind of scientific frame. But this idea that the choices you make must reflect on what you hold to be dear to you, mm-hmm. right? I think that's an interesting element, decision-making process, yeah. Can I add to that? Sure. So what if you think about yourself, maybe you might have a really good girlfriend, friend who's a female, and you find that you have obviously a lot of things in common, but you may not be a boyfriend or a girlfriend with her because there is no 
chemistry mm-hmm. in the, that physical spark. So I think if we were just to have that checklist, I really don't believe in checklists because you can have that and sometimes you just don't have the chemistry. And then you meet someone who totally violates all your criteria and there is something there. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to point out, I guess, or salvage to an extent mm-hmm. in that there's something about the field of romance or love where we find ourselves transformed in a sense, maybe for the better mm. or for even for the worse. And the transformation do not really map along the lines of self-interest, mm-hmm. right? We get very sacrificial, for example, when we get in a relationship. But we also could get very self-destructive, right? So sometimes we choose bad partners mm-hmm. uh, and we choose bad partners again, again and again. How would you explain that in the evolutionary framework? You know, relationships that don't work. So being attracted to bad boys or girls whom you know would hurt you. I guess in this case, again, I would look at the context. So what is it about these girls that attract you to them? Mm-hmm. What is it? Well, I, I don't know. Sorry. I, mean, I don't get very confessional here. <laughs> oh, but, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> but I think we can think of enough examples, you know, even in you know popular culture or something. But I don't know. But at least it seems to me that we don't necessarily prioritize survival in those cases, right? We mm-hmm. don't necessarily prioritize our chances to procreate and to just add volume to our species, mm-hmm. right? But what happens in those instances is a certain willingness to put something else before our well-being, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, maybe we, we read different kinds of literature <laughs> on this, but I wonder what would be the neuroscientific explanation for those types of behavior, you know? In a sense where you think, okay, there is a sort of addiction, right? There is a sort of mania going on, right? Mm-hmm. That maps onto, I guess, broadly speaking, love, but the the ebb and flow is very, very difficult, you know? And I'm trying to think about this too in light of how contemporary relationships are being challenged, you know, outside from the usual examples that were given, say, a generation ago, you know, where love opens the door to happiness, everything is possible if you just love one another. Those things are being challenged. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what what explanations or what resources your field might have to illuminate those, I guess, those sorts of difficulties, you know. Okay, maybe if you compare yourself, I'm sorry to use you as an example, okay, but I, okay, if you think about falling in love in your teens versus falling in love in your 20s or maybe your 30s, I think your objective in each age stage is very different. So in your teens, you know, it could be very, very much due to peer pressure. So that would affect, to a certain extent, your requirements for the partner. She has to be hot, she has to be popular, she has to be cool. And then obviously when you come to 20s, 30s, at this point in time, I think you're a little bit more stable. Maybe you're looking for a long-term relationship. So that would again influence the type of person that you would be attracted to. And of course, by 30 or so, Sometimes timing does make a difference. Anyone that you happen to be seeing at that point would seem attractive to you. I think if you want to look at the chemical changes, I can say that, for example, the women's biological clock does play a very big role in this. And if you look at the reproductive system of the women as well, it is very much designed to have them invest and have kids before 30 or around that time, because after that, they're ovaries and ovum go downhill. So I think in terms of physical, genetics, chemicals, changes in your body, it really does, to a certain extent, color your perception and maybe how you live your lifestyle. 
But at the same time, I would not say it's 100% that. Definitely socialization and the environment that you have around you makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So I think what you've just shared with me is something that's quite usual, typical in Asian countries. When you reach a certain age, the barrage of questions will come. Why aren't you seeing someone? This is the best time to get married. But if you're abroad, for example, that pressure is not there. And that, to a, again, to a certain extent, changes how you view the world and how you actually would live your life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So we have the technology now to basically trace our feelings, our behavior to certain processes in the brain, mm -hmm. right? And what else does it tell us? I mean, I mean, you've, you've shared this a lot already, but uh, just, I guess, continue some of your thoughts on what else this approach enlightens us on. Well, in terms of romance... First of all, I don't want to pigeonhole myself as some sort of love expert <laughs> in terms of that. But can I just maybe give a side comment sure, in sure. terms of the neurobiology of how love is represented in the brain? Because we've focused a lot on romantic love. And before we came into the studio, we had a conversation on how maternal love can essentially shape your template for how you view relationships in the future. One very interesting phenomenon that has come to light is that we see, for example, adopted children who did not know their biological parents. And after maybe 10, 20 years later, they meet again. And they actually have this attraction, hmm. which is obviously a very controversial topic that mm -hmm. people feel very uncomfortable about. I think they call this genetic sexual attraction. So I think that this is actually something really interesting because if you think about these children, they have been adopted. They maybe didn't know or didn't have any parents. So that that parental or maternal relationship template has not been set. Mm. So the only other relationship that they do know would be maybe romantic relationships. So when they meet their parents, obviously, you know, you are related genetically. There will be some sort of a bond. But since you didn't have the template in the first place, it is not unusual for you to maybe confuse that bond mm -hmm. as sexual attraction. Mm -hmm. So I just felt that this this was a very interesting um, illustration on how neuroscience can actually be very beneficial in this way by showing you the difference between the brain areas that are activated in maternal and also romantic love. Even though there's a lot of overlap, the primary areas that do differ are sexual desire. But in this case of these populations of adopted children or people who have not seen their parents, we can't make the same assumptions because right. their brains are wired a little bit differently. Right. So this is there's a very like Freudian undertone here, right? In that you kind of search for your mother substitute after you've been separated. Is is that sort of something like that at work, more or less? Or I wouldn't say you s well unconsciously. I would not disagree with that, but I just feel that. The hardware has not been set typically. So when you see or you have another template that is similar, that should build on that particular template, the wiring is, I guess, a little bit different. Right, right. And that can lead to confusion. That's an interesting turn of phrase that you would call it the hardware, because I think it really reflects the scientific ethos that mm. this is coming out of. And I wonder, does neuroscience have, say, insights on how to improve relationships? Or is it mostly <laughs> diagnostic? Is it mostly like descriptive rather than prescriptive? 
You know what? After talking to you, I find that I don't actually have... I mean, I used to think that I always had the neuroscientific perspective, but I actually feel that I do take into account all the other perspectives sure, as sure. well. Back to your question in terms of... Well, neuroscience is not a clinical science, so it's more of research. So we don't actually try to diagnose or prescribe anybody. But could you remind me again what your question was sure, in terms sure. of the... So I guess there's so much that so much of interest, I mm-hmm. think, not just for scientists. It seems to me that the things that you've shed light on is curious for insights that can help people beyond the scientific community. So I just wonder, does the discourse have prescriptions, right, for how to improve relationships, right? What make stronger familial bonds, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, rather than just, or is it just merely describing phenomena? Is it merely interested in explaining things rather than, you know, kind of ethical imperatives or like, you know, like not ethical imperatives per se, but how to kind of improve life or something, you know, like does (laughs) does it speak at that register too? I think it can. So, for example, if the more time you spend with somebody, you do notice, I'm not sure if you have, you notice friends like this. I do have friends, for example, I know who are very compatible with one another. And after a while, they start to essentially look alike. They dress alike, they act alike, they speak alike. And yeah, yeah, they complete this, each other's sentences. <laughs> to a certain extent, this is not, it's not random. Because if you think about being in very close proximity with somebody, you're having sex with this person and you are actually essentially swapping a lot of genetic information. And in this case, because you guys are compatible, uh, the similarities, it's going to be reflected in that. Mm-hmm. So you you start to, again, as you said, finish each other's sentence, dress alike, because you spend so much time together that your bodies essentially resonate and are in sync. Mm-hmm. So I guess if I want to advise people on how to improve your relationships or couples is spend time together. Yeah, yeah. Quality time is one of yeah. the languages of love, right? I think it's one of the underrated ones, if you ask me. Yeah. I like that initial insight about the maternal bond and somehow that resonating, you know, not just for the cases of those children who are separated and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, having that sort of exceptional instance, but also, like you said early on, that the mapping happens at the same place, right, in the brain, right? And that, to me, says a lot about our lingering need for security, mm-hmm. you know, and this is where I find like a lot of the um, attachment theory stuff quite fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. Because we don't quite get over that, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> however much we want to say we've, you know, matured emotionally or no one's our kind of EQ or whatever, you know, but that way in which we entered the world and were embraced, mm-hmm. right? And that allows us to develop our personality. You know, I, I think, insights from that experience hasn't been quite exhausted yet. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's something that we always somehow kind of grapple with, not just maybe scientifically, but also existentially, you know. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, essentially, I guess, I mean, if you think of a human being, we are essentially social beings. We are designed to bond. So I agree. Yeah. And that's why I think we're designed to bond, but we have this very strange rupture in our sense of community, right? We are we live more isolated mm-hmm. lives. We experience much shorter relationships romantically. We live behind gated communities. Even mm-hmm. low-middle-class neighborhoods are now just highly protected, highly fenced, right? And our social existence becomes more of, of an option now than a kind mm-hmm. of default mode, right? And I think this ties in together to like the sort of neuroses that people experience today, you know? 
mental health issues, anxiety, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So unfortunately, we have to wrap up. But this is very interesting uh, conversation. Do you have any recommendations for articles or books, websites, uh, anything like that? Our listeners can look up. Well, I guess if. One of my colleagues and I, and you possibly know him, Dr. Eugene T. Of course, and I, yeah, we've had him over a few yeah. times, yeah. We actually have been collaborating on a couple of projects. So one of our latest projects is a book that we've written for the general public. Nice. And that's essentially trying to explain emotions in terms of how we deal with emotions. And we have a special section on love, obviously. So if this is something that you feel would be interesting, uh, I think the latest update I got was that the book should hit the stores sometime in late February. So I think it's called Of Bromances and Biting Cute Babies. Okay. Questions on emotions you never thought of asking. If that's something that's appealing, do check it out. And in terms of, I guess anytime you talk about love, on having a good handle on emotions, it's a good foundation. And to this extent as well, you could also check out www.emotivity.my, which um, we have also collaborated on. Yeah, Interesting. And we can have you over again to talk about that book in more detail. That'd be really great. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks. I'm just trying to figure out all these emotions. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't get any easier. You think like adulthood would help, you know, but it actually just opens more like questions. And I don't know why. Maybe it's like we're more socialized in a complex environment or something, but... I just get perplexed every day, basically, you know, trying to name the things I'm feeling. But uh, Dr. Siling Choi, it was a pleasure. And hopefully we can have you again for further discussion. Are you on Twitter by any chance? Are you on social no, media? No, I'm not. I'm really bad with social media. <laughs> I'm off it. I'm, I've never been happier. I feel like emotionally it's helped me a lot <laughs> just getting off screen more. But uh, you can email the show, bfmnightschool at gmail.com. Look us up on Facebook. Type that in the search space and download our app as well, Apple App Store and Google Play. Once again, I'm Ahmad Fawad Rahman and this is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.